1: Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet.
0: Welcome back to TFR. Today, Opportunity Zones expert Steve Glickman joins us. Steve is the founder and CEO of Develop, the first full-service independent advisory firm for Opportunity Zone funds. He is also the co-founder of EIG, the ideas laboratory and advocacy organization in DC that architected the OZ program. In today's interview, we discuss an overview of the $6 trillion Opportunity Zone Program, the tax and other incentives that it provides, if a fund needs special classification in order to benefit from an Opportunity Zone investment, the asset classes best suited to benefit from the program, how OZs are delineated and chosen, if it's realistic for founders to relocate to OZs. What happens when a business expands beyond its opportunity zone? The risk factors and potential unintended consequences. Avoiding bad actors looking to capitalize on the new legislation. Steve's opportunity zone index and what it measures. And finally, we wrap up with Steve's response to the pundits arguing that the majority of the benefit accrues to financial services investors as opposed to those in the distressed areas. Here is the interview with Steve Glickman of Develop Advisors. Steve Glickman joins us today from Washington, D.C. Steve is the founder and CEO of Develop Advisors. Develop provides turnkey solutions for opportunity zone fund managers. Steve is also the co-founder of Economic Innovation Group, a bipartisan research and policy organization, which was the architect of the $6 trillion OZ program, the largest community investment incentive in U.S. history. Previously, he served in the Obama administration as a senior economic advisor. He worked on Capitol Hill as counsel to Chairman Henry Waxman and as legislative aide to Congressman Ed Markey. Steve, welcome to the program.
1: Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So why don't you start out with a quick overview of your background and you know, the events prior to Develop Advisors?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, You gave a a really great, quick run-through of that. But uh, I spent, really, the last 10 years of my life in economic policy in Washington, D.C., about five years in the Obama administration, working on uh, manufacturing, uh, small business, trade and investment policy, mostly at the White House. Uh, And then I left in 2013 and met kind of serendipitously Sean Parker, the, one of the founders of Napster and the first president of Facebook, and we had a bit of a mind meld over how to tap into private capital to solve uh, for some economic development issues we saw around the country and decided to launch the economic innovation group together. It was the economic innovation group was and is a, a bipartisan think tank and advocacy group really focused in on how you solve, issues around geographic inequality around the country and that organization was the architect of the opportunity zones program which we spent about five years working on with a a bipartisan and pretty diverse cast of characters until the legislation was passed in 2017 and then worked throughout most of 2018 to try to build out the the rules and the regulations and the map of where opportunity zones now are Uh, and then i left eig in september of 2018 to launch develop and develop is the first independent advisory group uh, in the opportunity zone space and i spend time traveling all around the country trying to help grow the education around the marketplace and then more specifically working with a handful of large opportunity zone fund managers across real estate and business investing in markets all around the country to help them figure out how to Strategize, structure, and ultimately deploy capital in opportunity zones around America.
0: Very good. Is that Mr. Sean Parker? Is he still involved?
1: He is still the chairman of the uh, of the Economic Innovation Group, which is run by our third co founder, who's now the, the president. There who took over um, after I left as a CEO named John Lethierry. and they're still working together on opportunity zones and then a number of other issues um, that have you know since grown their portfolio of things they, th- they think are really important for these communities, like, uh, you know, uh, around immigration and workforce development and other issues that relate to, you know, how places compete for talent and jobs and, and, and business growth.
0: And how did the two of you link up? Were you, were you both passionate about, you know, distressed areas and sort of forgotten about communities? Or, you know, what was sort of the auspice of your sort of first introduction and in, in meeting?
1: Well, like, you know, so many things in life it was, you know, a, a habit of circumstance based on who we both knew in our network. We were originally introduced by Ro Khanna, who's now a congressman from Silicon Valley and then was a candidate for Congress. And Sean was a supporter of him. And we, we, we were very good friends from having served together in the Obama administration. Sean was, I think, very passionate about taking um, a lot of the success he, has, he had had as an entrepreneur and investor and starting to apply to U.S. policy and politics. And I had you know been spending the last few years really focused in on how you help uh, manufacturing communities that had been really devastated after the recession in 2008. And we got to talking and found that we shared a lot of the same political outlook on how you get the two parties to work together and how you begin to bring in private capital from the sidelines and thought it would be a compelling enough uh, model to start to build the foundation for an, a new type of think tank and advocacy group in D.C. And let me tell you, for the first couple of years, there was a lot of padding of heads. Of, <laughs> oh, great, another Silicon Valley venture to save America. Good luck. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it took a lot. To, you know, this was the same time that Mark Zuckerberg and others launched Forward.us around immigration, which I don't think went spectacularly well. And so we're kind of entering the, the D.C. universe in this weird kind of environment where people were. Very skeptical about outside movements to you know that could do big things.
0: Got it, got it. Talk a little more about your work at at Develop Advisors. You know what what are you doing with fund managers specifically?
1: Yeah, well, it's really the whole range of the aspects of opportunity zones that are you know pretty complex for folks to figure out now. So it's everything from uh, market intelligence and strategy around how the market's forming, where it's forming, what assets class it's forming around, how how to fundraise around that to really technical um, work around structuring funds and structuring deals so that they work in this program and investors can get the tax incentive to a lot of relationship stuff around working with investors and wealth managers and mayors and the media and others to help fund managers kind of build their place in the in the marketplace and kind of develop their brand and credibility. And what's exciting now is, and, and this is the same reason I think, Uh, many groups need help is this is all brand new. I mean, the rules are brand new. The strategies are brand new. A lot of the players are brand new and everyone's trying to figure out how the market works. And I, you know, this is all I think about and and do. So I'm I'm able to share a lot of that, you know, insight with the relatively small group of fund managers that that I work with.
0: Good, good. Yeah. And let's talk about opportunity zones. You know, that's the, the topic for the day. We'll just start out with the basics. So can you give us a, an overview of the uh, six trillion dollar OZ program?:
1: I think the easiest way to think about this is this is a incentive that's meant to change where investors, both large and small, uh, look at their next investment, but providing a, a very strong federal subsidy if you're willing to take on the the risk of, of doing a few things. One, investing in a low income community. Opportunity zones are built out of low-income communities around the country. Two, for a long period of time. So really you get the full incentive of opportunity zones, which is the largest incentive in the in the in the tax code for capital gains, if you're invested for 10 years or more. Three, you've got to make an equity investment, which means you're you're taking more risk you know, than, than a lot of other incentives, which are really facilitating debt. And for you're doing it in a either in a real estate project that requires a lot of development, or with a company that's high growth and looking to raise capital to expand what it can do. And what that all boils down to is this is a pretty risky asset class. They are growth companies or development real estate projects in second tier markets that you've got to hold for a long period of time. And because of that. The federal government have, has provided this subsidy, which basically works in two ways. Um, at the front end, it starts with having capital gains. So you have to already be invested in the market to use the program. And let's say you've got a million dollars of capital gains in you know, Apple stock and you, you sell it. Normally, you pay 24% in federal capital gains taxes the next year. And what this program enables you to do is defer or put off that tax bill until... You know, paying it in 2027. So that's the first part of the incentive is that deferral. And then if you hold it for long enough, there's two marks at five years and seven years, you get a discount on that tax bill. So instead of having to pay what would be $240,000, at today's tax rates, you're now paying $240,000 minus 15%. So you only owe $200,000. But the big part of the incentive is you put that money to work during that whole period of time. And it's all pre-tax money you're putting to work. And if that a million dollars that you've invested in an Opportunity Zone fund. Let's say you put in a real estate project in downtown St. Louis, and that project's now worth $3 million. At the end of 10 years, you've got $2 million of profits you made, uh, which if you've held your stake in it for 10 years or more, are now all tax-free. And it's really the only part of the tax code that enables you to totally forgive capital gains. And that means you get a, a huge boost on the returns on your investment, but that of course means you've made a, a profitable investment to begin with. So there's this is really an incentive that you know ensures that investors are carrying a lot of risk, but they're also getting a lot of the reward for making long-term investments in places that really need capital.
0: Got it, got it. So a, a huge requirement here then is that 10-year hold period. Is that right?
1: Well, you can sell whenever you you want, as you know the investor based on whatever your agreement is with the the manager of your fund. But getting that back end incentive, which is a, the majority of the tax incentive here, requires you to be invested for ten years or more. So it is a long term, you know, generally illiquid investment, and that's you know part of the deal.
0: Good incentive, though. I mean, good incentive for long term investing, long term focus instead of you know what we're commonly used to with uh, quarterlies and. Uh... Fast transactions and everyone trying to sort of optimize for the short term.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's all sorts of organic reasons to want to be a long term investor. To you know, particularly given the fact we're you know at least many people think we're at the end of the a cycle in terms of the markets, and you know you want investments that can outlast uh, you know so you're not hesitant not a you know led to to kind of sell at the at the bottom of a market. So I think there's a lot of value now in making being a long term investor. But yeah, it's meant to change the mindset of investors and developers and, you know, venture capitalists. So from the developer perspective, it's instead of thinking about development in three to five year increments where you're looking to sell as soon as you complete it and don't really care what happens in the long term, mm-hmm. let's take a long term approach to how your investments are affecting that community and you know, whether or not they're likely to to be a win-win for everyone and, you know, be, be mutually successful. And as a venture capitalist, it's, you know, don't take every company that you invest in and, you know, decide when they when they get to their next round of funding, they need to come out to San Francisco or LA or New York or Boston to be based because it's too hard to support their growth where they're located. So this is really meant to drive place-based development, um, whether it's through uh, company investments or or through real estate ones and a lot of funds are already structured to have 10-year horizons so that's not totally different than the way a lot of you know alternative investment models already work
0: are there incentives aside from from the tax benefits
1: well those are really the big ones although increasingly you're seeing other incentives layered on top of it so I'll, I'll tell you what I i mean i mean the, the crux of this program and what's in the legislation relates to all those capital gains incentives i described but increasingly there are there are a number of states and cities that are putting their own incentives on top of it so in 30 states their state capital gains rates are now treated exactly like the federal rate is that includes a fairly high-tax state like new york and, and you know on the other hand california is still figuring it out so they've got the highest capital gains rate in the country at 13 percent, which is like half the federal rate uh, and they're looking at conforming the treatment to their opportunity zones, but it looks like only for alternative energy and affordable housing investment. Uh, so every place is going to have a different nuance. Many states are offering expedited you know, land use rules around permitting and zoning, providing other incentives like workforce incentives or state and local grants. And then increasingly, that's happening in the federal government as well. There's now an, an interagency council run out of the, the White House uh, led by HUD, Housing and Urban Development, and they're tying low-income housing tax credits and economic development dollars and small business lending and rural development dollars and other incentives to projects in opportunity zones. So I, I do think you're seeing a lot of positive alignment in trying to take as many tools as we have you know, in the public sector and apply it alongside the private investment incentive.
0: And is is everything structured at the specific investment level? So could a... A fund like mine, for instance, make an investment. It happens to be in an opportunity zone. I hold the equity for ten years. I can benefit from the the program, or does it need to be a fund that has special designation and some approvals to invest in, in opportunity zone opportunities?
1: So it, it's really more the the latter. You you have to invest through a special investment vehicle called a qualified opportunity fund but those can be structured in a lot of different ways. So in the simplest form, it's really just an LLC that may have one investor or one asset or both and you know can be structured through any any lawyer and set up pretty quickly or they can be very complex vehicles that involve lots of investors and lots of assets and complicated investor and you know partnership documentation. So there's a pretty wide range but uh, you've got to set up this this qualified opportunity fund uh, and certify it with the treasury department. What you know, whatever structure and whatever comp- level of complication you decide on, and report every six months to the treasury department that you've deployed ninety percent of your capital in qualifying assets in opportunity zones. And there's you know the the program is really designed to ensure that there's a separate strategy where you're deploying capital fairly quickly and over a long-term period of time in these zones. So it can't just be one investment out of your portfolio, or you can't invest directly. You've got to create a vehicle to do it, even if that vehicle is just a simple kind of pass-through structure.
0: Got it. So I could, in theory, spin up an SPV and make sure that I've worked with the attorneys so that it, it qualifies and then and then make the investment and follow all the reporting requirements.
1: Yeah, that's right. And you know, right now, the reporting requirements and the compliance isn't isn't that complicated? And SPVs are a very common model, whether it's for one single real estate asset or it's one company looking to raise its you know, A or B or C round of, of capital, looking to do it through a structure that will give its investors this benefit. This is really a, a tool, a fundraising tool yep. uh, for fund managers or for companies or real estate developers or whomever. And the incentive is really going to their investors and it's really you're creating this, this vehicle as a sort of fiduciary to help ensure your investors are compliant with what are you know now two hundred and fifty pages of federal regulations around you know how this program works.
0: You know, we we've kind of touched on this already. We've talked about real estate, we've talked about startups a little bit. Broadly speaking, you know, this applies to alternatives and, and long term equity hold periods. But what are some of the asset classes that you've seen that are are sort of best suited to this uh, piece of legislation?
1: Well, you know, technically you can it really applies to any type of investments with a couple exceptions and i'm seeing all of those models in real time real estate was certainly the marines of this program they were the first in they have a lot of muscle memory in the tax advantaged kind of investing space uh, and these are you know physical tangible assets and opportunity zones that aren't going anywhere so it's a fairly intuitive way to invest, but increasingly, and this is largely because we got a lot of regulatory clarity from the Treasury Department in April that made clear that investing in businesses will also be quite easy, particularly if you're creating a new business in an opportunity zone or you're relocating a business into an opportunity zone. They basically qualify the moment you know it arrives in that zone, and so increasingly I'm seeing both funds and individual companies in the energy and infrastructure space in advanced manufacturing in film and studio production in venture capital in healthcare and education technology including like you know f- financing the building of charter schools really anything you can make an equity investment on that has either some level of appreciation to it or even if it's depreciating in this program that depreciation you never have to pay the taxes back on if you hold 10 years or more, there's a lot of interesting structures that can work well. There's only really two categories of exceptions. You can't invest in essentially a financial services company that's you know making loans or making equity investments, and you can't do like a fund-to-fund investment. And then the other big category is what the tax code calls thin businesses. So they're delineated in the tax code, but it's things like casinos and country clubs and massage parlors and liquor stores. And otherwise, you can really do... Anything else, and I think we're just beginning to see the creativity in this space of how people are thinking about applying this to all sorts of models, both big and small, like you know franchises of restaurants and grocery stores, and you know other other businesses uh, in many of these communities.
0: You know, just to back up a bit here how how are these opportunity zones defined? You know, what credentials and what sort of specific characteristics make an area an opportunity zone?
1: Essentially what the Census Bureau calls low-income community census tracts. And I'll I'll walk you back on how the process works. So this all happened in the first six months of last year. The federal government, Congress, created a designation which had been used in other programs and applied it to this program uh, of low-income communities. Uh, And those communities are defined economically by having a median income at about 80% of the state's income or having a poverty rate above 20%. And when you look at the map of the country in the aggregate, about 40% of the country is a low-income community census tract. And so that means in every state, roughly about 40% of the state is a, is a low-income community. And what Congress did was empower the governors to choose one out of every four of these low-income communities in their state to become an opportunity zone. And so on that, you've got you know, roughly about 12% of the country that's now an opportunity zone. And they're about 75% urban, about 25% rural. Where they're located is different, depending on the kind of the baseline economics of the state and how governors selected, because they had a pretty broad discretion to make these selections. But in the middle of the country, you have the downtowns of many big cities are opportunity zones. So all of downtown, you know, Detroit and Cleveland and St. Louis and Places in the South, like Atlanta and Birmingham, um, and other places, have a huge concentration of opportunity zones in the center of the city. In some of the highest, higher performing cities economically, like San Francisco and D.C. and Manhattan and Boston, you don't see a lot of zones in the middle of the city. They're more on the outskirts. But you have a pretty big geographic diversity, and you know, opportunity zones are not mostly out of the way places. I think they're mostly places that would be very uh, attractive to investors and companies and developers, but often these are overlooked parts of the country anyhow, because you know there's a, a very much a herd mentality when it comes to being an investor, either in real estate or business investing, and there's been such a concentration, particularly on the business investing side, in just a handful of markets. I mean, 75% of venture capital goes to San Francisco, LA, Boston, and New York, that there hasn't been a lot of stretching beyond that to find entrepreneurs and businesses in the rest of the country.
0: So as as governors of these states change, are the opportunity zones also going to change with different administrations?
1: Good question. No. So the program has been structured to lock in a lot of these choices for a long period of time. So in terms of the census tracts that were chosen as opportunity zones, that map supposed to stay in the place until the end of 2028, you know, around 10 years or so, give or take. Uh, and then the idea is if this program is successful and is successfully deploying capital and, you know, the various stakeholders are are fairly happy, you'll see a new round of opportunity zones be selected because there's, there's always going to be a bottom 40% of the country economically and there's always going to be a tranche of those that are prime for investment but just not getting the capital. And the idea to make this a permanent part of how we do economic development in america in a way that taps into the largest you know source of capital we have right now which is those private dollars and this is really a reaction to the fact that the way we make big investments in this country has changed dramatically over the last few decades the federal government is in you know 20 trillion dollars of debt many state and local governments are broke or barely staying above water and uh large companies have you know less and less invested locally because they consider themselves to be global companies. And you've got a tax code that's now very favorable to individual investors. And so they're sitting on, as you mentioned towards the beginning, $6 trillion of capital gains just in equities and business investment, not even including the real estate market. So there's a tremendous amount of passive capital that we're you know trying to tie into and empower investors to utilize to build a future for many more of these cities.
0: Is the expectation here that entrepreneurs or new business owners will relocate to these areas to headquarter their new businesses? I mean, that seems like a bit of a stretch, or is it? Is it more that you know more businesses will be started in these regions because they can attract the right sorts of funding that otherwise they couldn't get?
1: Well, both, but I'm not sure I think it's a stretch. I mean, listen, you're already seeing people relocate businesses you know, to capital centers like New York, San Francisco, Seattle, Boston, D.C., a lot of these other places we're talking about, when there's a lot of reasons people don't want to be there. I mean, they're really expensive. Housing in particular is really expensive. Look at the story of San Francisco and Seattle, which has so many companies. They don't even want more companies. They just want housing for people to live in, where it costs four times as much to higher talent than in other parts of the country, so people are already relocating to be close to the capital. The idea is to, you know, bring the capital closer to them. And ultimately, the thesis of this program, which I happen to think is true and a lot of, and has a lot of resonance to our politics as well, is people really want to be able to develop their their company and their future, you know, in and around the communities where they grew up, where they've got family, where they have friends, where they're culturally. Comfortable, And they don't want to have to go to a big, expensive city. And that's, I think, why San Francisco loses far more people than it takes in every year, because it's increasingly unaffordable, which I think is the other side of this coin. It's, It's not just that this is a program that benefits, you know, the former industrial powerhouses that are in decline or rural communities, but there's a huge overcrowding problem now in the handful of cities that have robust capital markets and investor presence. And, you know, I think it benefits everyone to see some of this be more equally spread around the country. So I I do think businesses are going to relocate and businesses are going to start in different places, but it's going to take a while, I think, for the education to seep through so that this this becomes a, you know, a more common practice over time.
0: What about, you know, these startups sort of thinking through this practically, you know, a, a new business emerges in an opportunity zone, a distressed region, it grows, it expands maybe they keep their headquarters there but you know they have other offices in in major urban centers and in major cities and sort of the the proportion of employees you know the balance kind of shifts to non-opportunity zones and maybe this can't be predicted yet i don't know but how do you see this playing out you know as as businesses grow and expand beyond the opportunity zones that they were founded in
1: well i mean you know practically speaking this is a Conversation for companies and their investors, and you know, to the extent they're being set up to be good opportunity zone investors, they need to be cognizant of the fact that staying in compliance with the program, which means you know, growing is fine, but growing in opportunity zones is an important piece of this. But I think with a you know, kind of a strategy that's focused on this, it's not that challenging to do. I mean, you've got opportunity zones in in downtown San Jose, in downtown Los Angeles. You've got opportunity zones in in Brooklyn and Queens. You've got opportunity zones in, you know, Austin and Denver. So a lot of the same places companies may want to be now, they're going to have opportunities to grow into you know the, the specific neighborhoods within those cities. And you know, we should be seeing more development of those places in the both in terms of the housing options and the office options and co-working spaces and incubators and accelerators, all models. I'm seeing early in this program that will be kind of hospitable places for these, these businesses to grow. And that's why it's so important that the, both the real estate and the business side is firing in all cylinders because they really need each other for this all to work. But it, it's not going to work for every business. There's, I think, a big question around, or at least a big perception of a question around talent and where you can access talent pools. And I don't think all business models are going to work in all places. But look, we've got... Even if you're just talking about, you know, tech, we've got amazing tech universities all over the country In you know, University of Illinois in in the downstate part of of Illinois in you know, Ann Arbor, just outside of Detroit, Carnegie Mellon, you know, in in Pittsburgh and, you know, and on and on. There's other major research hubs, training engineers and computer scientists and others that are far more diverse than where businesses are actually being created and growing. So even if we just start with that circle of talent pool, and I'd argue there's three, four, five dozen other examples of places, like the three I described, you're going to see a far bigger spread to where businesses are, are sprouting up, like even in a really technical heavy space, you know, like high-tech growth companies.
0: Do you have some, some of the early statistics on the number and the amount of private capital funds that have been raised and or deployed with a mandate around opportunity zones?
1: So not exactly. And this is one of the nitpicky issues in this program. There was initially a group of reporting requirements we built into the legislation so that the Treasury Department would have an obligation to tell us who was investing and where. And it was stripped out of the process, stripped out of the legislation, in the process of getting the bill passed for mostly technical, not political reasons. So there is no great single database of where these funds are. On the real estate side, which again has been the most active part of this space, there are you know databases like CoStar that is collecting early data on this program. and they found there were about 300 or so opportunity zone funds created you know up through the, the first quarter or so this year. And we're just now seeing the business side of this universe take off. but there is no comprehensive database of what we're talking about. You know, I think we're talking about easily at least a few hundred opportunity zone funds and several billion dollars of deals that have already been done. And then this year is the big year for capital raising and to see the capital come off the sidelines and deployed into these funds and new vehicles. So I think you're going to at least hear anecdotally about a far more number of different types of deals being done around the country.
0: In your estimation, Steve, what are some of the the risk factors and or potential unintended consequences that, that we should all be mindful of?
1: Well, as an investor... I think the most important thing to realize is that this is still a fairly risky asset class. And that's why there's a federal subsidy. I mean, you're talking about second-tier markets, projects that on the business side are going to be more likely to fail, on the real estate side are more difficult to develop, and um, a set of now fairly complex rules that will, I think, become less, less complex over time that you have to understand and operate under to really deploy capital successfully in this program. And so that's hard to do. And I think the fund managers in this program matter a lot. And as they develop credibility and track record, that will start to sort out who's real in this market from who's not. But I think investors now have a have to do a lot of work and due diligence on both the program and the fund managers and their strategies to know that at the end of the day they're making smart investments even beyond the tax credit. I think there are concerns beyond that in certain communities about the impact of too much investment in places that have already done well and whether that will cause displacement. And I think that's a real issue for certain places, although for, you know, 96% of the country, according to the Urban Institute, which studied this uh, recently in relation to opportunity zones, 96% of these zones aren't really experiencing gentrification or at risk of it. They're still experiencing displacement, but it really comes from too little investment, not, not too much. So I do think the Seattle's and san francisco's and brooklyn's of the world have to think hard about just like they would right now about really at the end of the day how to build more housing so that people can affordably live in those cities and that's a challenge regardless of this program you know my goal is to see an enormous amount of capital flow into these communities let's call 100 million dollars a year which i think is in the realm of the possible as the as the program develops out and that's a transformative level of capital mm-hmm. for places that will change, I think, the map of how the economy works. And so I'm, you know, I'm not every one of these deals are going to be the deal that this that this program was envisioned to create. And it's going to be some low-hanging fruit at the beginning. But I, I do think it will lead towards a much bigger development of deals all, you know, far beyond what we're seeing, you know, this year.
0: At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, and I think I think part of my hesitation around around this topic and why I've waited to cover it until I could get you specifically on the program uh, is because with any new government incentive program or or even you know overhyped areas in general, like we saw with with crypto, you know, as recently as last year, it attracts a lot of opportunists. Um, in some cases, charlatans you know, looking to capitalize on something that's new and hot, but maybe not yep. well understood. How do you think we avoid and discourage bad actors from taking advantage of either LPs or or entrepreneurs?
1: I think that's a really good point. I mean, in some ways, the answer to that question is that these underlying Opportunity Zone funds are really, you know, private equity or venture capital vehicles at their core. That are investing in, in certain places or certain ways to get this incentive. And you should treat them like evaluating any other private equity and venture capital fund. Yep, And look at the fund manager and look at their track record and look at their strategy and look at their deals and look at you know how they're dealing with risk and what their return profile is and make an informed decision. Just like you want you know throw money to any investor who claims to be a VC or who claims to have the next hot real estate deal. And so I think you still have to do that. It's more challenging because it's a new program with new players and new funds. And so there isn't the same kind of set of established market leaders that you know you might expect to see in private equity venture capital. Now, although some of those players are in the game, I do think the degree of difficulty is more difficult. And yes, I've seen the funds in this program, too, that are selling you know deals that don't make any sense or really. And I think this is more common than not. Don't really understand how the program works or how the rules work. And that's you know part of the growing pains of being a new industry. So I, I worry about that, but I don't worry about it a ton because in general the investors, unlike crypto, which really anyone could come in and buy you know Bitcoin or Ether and put in ten or twenty-five thousand dollars or more on uh you know on a, an exchange you could download on your phone, accessing the opportunity zone market is more complex than that. First and foremost it starts with you got to have capital gains and so you got to have a meaningful enough capital gains for it to matter which means you're already a, a, an investor in the market and typically a pretty sophisticated investor so these are funds that are typically being marketed just for practical reasons if you know if for uh, compliance reasons to you know qualified investors and qualified purchasers that are pretty sophisticated but you know this should be a small part of anyone's portfolio because it's still a risky asset class, although for the funds that do well, the returns are going to be astronomical. You're talking about funds that are looking at pre-tax 10 to 15% returns and post-tax could be looking at returns that are, you know, in the 20s over the course of 10 years, which is as competitive as any other product in the market. And I think that's what makes it attractive and interesting for folks, even if you weren't thinking about, which I think a lot of people are, the impact and how it kind of fits into the in- you know, impactful investment you're looking to do out of your portfolio.
0: Steve, one of the services that Develop Advisors provides is the OZI or the Opportunity Zone Index. What is this index and what are you attempting to measure?
1: The Opportunity Zones Index is really the first comprehensive economic analysis of all of those Opportunity Zones around the country, at least in the U.S. It doesn't include Puerto Rico and the territories. Based on census data, so it's not really an advocacy piece as much as it's a data piece. We've taken a number of different variables: home prices, uh, household income, you know, uh, job creation, unemployment rate, education, and other factors, and we've compiled it into an index that rates and scores and ranks every opportunity zone in America, and boils it up at the county, city, and state level in one big interactive map that gives people a feel what opportunity zones feel like vis-a-vis each other and you know at some level the data is not that surprising in that a lot of these coastal markets that are already doing economically well their zones are doing proportionally economically better than other parts of the country but what i thought was really interesting is as you dive into many cities and you get down into their downtowns places people may not be thinking about investing in downtown st louis or Indianapolis or other places you see zones that are as economically attractive as any of these big coastal cities and they may not have you know 30 of those tracks they may just have five or six but those five or six tracks you know may encompass a number of very interesting companies and you know and real estate assets and others so it's really meant to open people's eyes to what an opportunity zone looks and feels like and to i think beat back some of the stereotypes that unless you're investing in you know Oakland or San Jose you're investing in somewhere that's economically hopeless and that's just not what the data shows us it shows that there's much less of a concentration of that economic vitality in places but it shows that there's plenty of places that have potential that have just been un- underappreciated or overlooked by capital markets for you know for a long time yep Steve, what
0: would you say to the the pundits that claim that the majority of the benefits will accrue to the financial services investors and not to the distressed communities?
1: Well, I view the fates of the investors in the communities as being fairly linked. If yeah. you're going to do well in this program, it's because you're making a long-term profitable investment that gives you skin in the game to ensure other things are happening in those communities that will benefit your investment that you know there's workers are being trained businesses are coming in to fill up your real estate space crime is being reduced when you align the interests of the private and public sectors you get a lot of similar goals that people want places that have a lot of economic vitality and a good quality of life and that are safe and offer good education everyone wants that and now investors will care about a far bigger chunk of America and how well they do along those lines. So I think those those two stakeholder groups are far more linked than maybe either one of those groups thinks they're linked. I mean, there's a, I think there is some justifiable skepticism among communities that, you know, these investors come in and they don't really care about us. And from investors of like, you know, why should we bother with all this other stuff? But when you change your your lens from a short-term investor to a long-term investor, there's a much greater alignment. And this program was designed so you didn't have to you know, want to be an impact investor necessarily, although you could be, to use this program and have a huge amount of impact. It could just be that you're looking for returns and you've got a fund manager that needs to go to an increasingly large part of the country to find those deals and work harder at it because now they've got the capital. And that's when you'll know the program's working. Now, funds are really competing for capital, and they've got plenty of access to deals. As over time, as more and more capital comes into the program, there's going to be a pressure on finding more and more quality deals. And that's going to push people into you know, neighborhoods and places and types of projects that they may not be thinking of right now. So I think you're going to see an alignment. And to people who really push on that, I think the, the, the most obvious pushback is, the status quo isn't working either. I mean, <laughs> yeah. we can't we can't live with the current state of affairs where twenty big cities benefit from economic growth and trade and immigration and, and technology, and the rest of the country doesn't. And it, you know, I think anyone who's really paying attention sees how dangerously it plays out in our politics and how it starts to divide people based on all sorts of other lines when they don't feel like they're going to benefit with and are connected with uh, positive things happening with America. And that leads to, I think, a lot of bad outcomes for our country. So I think we don't have a lot to lose. I think the, the biggest failure for this program will be if people don't don't invest, not if they invest too much.
0: Steve, if we could cover any topic on the program, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it?
1: Uh, yeah. Is this like living or dead?
0: Well, hopefully living <laughs> if we're going <gonna, laughs> to interview them here on the show.
1: I've gotten very into Buddhism, so I believe in uh, Hinduism. So I, b- I believe in re- reincarnation. So who oh, knows what's possible? To me, most important topic is because I'm you know very politically minded in how the public and private sector work together is how the role of large companies in America changes in a number of different ways. Whether that's the breakup of large companies, the ways companies reinvest in communities, the way they think about their short-term and long-term incentives you know the way they treat workers to me that's the quintessential question of our of our time and whether we get to a place where i think there's more of an equilibrium between the needs of workers and communities and the the profit motives of of businesses you know i think we got to solve that question effectively to to get america to you know the place it needs to be and you know i think you're going to see this as a huge issue running up in the in the 2020 campaign so so to me that's it's endlessly fascinating.
0: Agreed. And finally here, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you?
1: Yeah, so I'm actually super active on, on LinkedIn, which is probably the only social media source I, I can't live without. Um, and I'm also easy to find via my website, developadvisors.com, where you can find a, a pretty good overview of the program and uh, some of those interactive maps that we talked about in the index uh, and there's email contact information that, you know, gets to me for those interested in, you know, talking and learning more.
0: Well, of all the folks that, you know, we could have gotten to talk about Opportunity Zones, I I feel pretty fortunate that we had you on the show today. You know, the, the brain drain is real. We've talked about it before, you know, people leaving some of these distressed areas and going to big cities and going to, you know, economically successful areas and uh, the capital following them. And so... I am cautiously optimistic and, and hopeful that, you know, this program really does a lot for uh, places across the nation.
1: So am I. And watch, I do think this will be a transformative model for uh, American communities. And if it doesn't work, we don't have a lot of plan B as a country. So <laughs> so we should all be working to make sure it does work, whatever that, wh- wherever you fall in the marketplace, whether you're a community leader or an investor or a developer or an entrepreneur to the extent we're collectively aligned to you know, focusing in on making these places successful, I think we're all going to be better off.
0: Very good. Well, Steve, thanks so much again for the time and uh, look forward to the next one.
1: Thanks, Nick. Talk to you.
0: That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm. Thank you.